This is episode number 66, a special edition on the Sudity Challenge in Poland. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. How's your day going? I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm thankful that you have been checking out our episodes week after week. If you're enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a couple of seconds. You just have to open up the app, go to ratings and reviews at the bottom, and you can click five stars and leave a comment that will help other people whenever they find the show. Today's episode is a special edition. My husband, Matt Iwanis, and I went to Poland for the six-day Sudity mountain bike stage race. And in this episode, we talk about the race itself, and we also talk about the travel experience and the cultural experience of being there. We talk about what it was like to drive on the roads in the Czech Republic and in Poland. We talk about the race itself, what it was like to be there, what the course was like, and also something unexpected that came up in Matt's race that I think will be helpful for anyone listening to this show. We also talk about traveling in Krakow and Prague. So I think that there's a lot in this episode that's really fun. And if you're curious about what it's like to race a mountain bike in Poland and what it's like to travel there, I think you'll like this episode. I want to give a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes adaptogenic mushroom products that you can add into your drinks and juices, or you can just drink it alone. I found out about this product this year and have been trying it out, and I've been enjoying the chaga mushroom elixir the best. And chaga mushrooms are dense and detoxifying antioxidants, and they're also really awesome for anti-inflammatory things. And as athletes, we always have something that's inflamed, so being able to drink that has been helping with aches and pains and detoxing my system. I also was using it for jet lag. There's a little bit of information out there saying that it helps rebalance your system and that's kind of what adaptogens do in general. Mushrooms are scientifically studied and are a really great way to supplement and add into your diet. I like this company because they also have a free mushroom academy, so you can educate yourself and learn a lot about these mushrooms that we don't really learn in our society. We're always about eating portobello mushrooms and button mushrooms, which aren't really superfoods in the same way as some of these ancient mushrooms are. I encourage giving it a try. Go to foursigmatic.com. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash Sonia Looney or use my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout to get 15% off any of their products. And I'd love to hear what you think. I'd love to hear what your favorites are. So go check them out. And last, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you take a screenshot and post on social media or leave a comment for me and for any guests that you hear on other episodes. We'd love to hear from you. And it's so cool to see whenever you guys share it. I want to give a special shout out to podcast fan Ricardo Ryder for taking lots of screenshots and sharing. It's been really cool to connect with you. So thank you. It was super cool to have Matt on the show with me. He's such an insightful guy and so well-spoken. So I'm really thankful that he was able to make it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Here we go. So we're here in Squamish today and my husband Matt is joining us for the show. Hello, everybody. 
It's fun to have Matt back. It's been a while. And we've also been trying to get this podcast recorded, but we've been super busy. Yeah, lots of traveling, lots of trips. But yeah, we're excited to talk about our latest adventure. Yeah, so we came back and uh, we were home from Europe for one week. And then we went to Austin, Texas for a conference for you. And then saw my cousin, and now we're in Squamish, and then we're actually heading home right after we finish recording today. Yeah, and as you probably are aware out there, that Squamish has some amazing riding, but while we were in Austin for this conference, we got to get out riding there, and I would not have guessed that Austin, Texas, of all places, actually has some pretty fun technical riding. So that was a bit of a treat. It's also a treat to be back in Squamish and get some super fun, gnarly riding in. And now heading back home to Kelowna to get into the dry, dry rest of summer. Yeah, it's been super smoky. Like this is the worst summer ever in history of wildfires in BC. Yeah, I think there's over 515 fires currently burning in British Columbia. So last year was a, was a record year. This is even more of a record year, which is unfortunate for everybody. Thankfully, I don't think anyone's had been too badly disposed of or, or evacuated, that kind of thing, like they have in the past. But it's been a hard year for smoke and air quality all the way up, I think, from California all the way up the coast for everybody. So it's it's been tough, all right. Yeah, so we went over to Poland for the Sudity Challenge stage race, and that was one of our big trips that we had planned for the year. And I first heard of this race. It's been a few years since I've heard of this race, but at Brazil Ride last year, I met the guy, and his name is Tom Janas, and he's the one who owns the Bordograph Photography Company. So if you guys have been at some races, there is a photographer business there and they take lots of awesome photos. So I met him and we were just chatting and it turns out he's originally from Poland and we were, he was telling me that that race specifically had some really good single track. And something that we definitely take for granted in North America is how lucky we are to have so many trails. Like Matt was just saying, we went to Austin, there was great riding there. There's pretty much great riding everywhere. And even the stage races in North America are phenomenal in terms of course quality. So to be able to go over to Europe and find some technical riding was awesome. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've noticed over time as as you leave North America, there's more of a focus on adventure and length of the race than technical quality of the trails. So we'd heard quite the opposite about Poland. Not only do you get a very tough, challenging course about that are long days with adventure, but there's also legitimately tough t- single tracks. So we went in there being a little bit skeptical because sure, we've heard things are technical before, but I think we were both pretty pleasantly surprised. It was a pretty legit course. Yeah, and our preparation wasn't exactly what we were hoping for. Like we did a race block in June with some really fun BC races and we had all these grand plans to do everything, conquer it all. And we really plan to spend a lot more time with family this summer because it's really easy to just get busy and then forget to make time for family and take it for granted. So we had all these family trips planned. But unfortunately, whenever there's family around and particularly little kids, it's easy to get sick. And we got both got sick on this weekend and it was like two weeks before or maybe a week before we were leaving for the race so both of us were sick right before leaving and this has been a tough year for both of us actually in terms of sickness and we're like what's going on and of course some of our family members are like well you need to eat some meat that's why you're getting sick but it's like actually not because both of us hadn't been sick like I hadn't been sick in four years and then this year I've just been sick so much And it's from burnout. And like I work with Dr. Chris Keim, the sports psychologist, and she's been on the show multiple times, but she kept telling me like, look, and she's been telling me this for over a year. 
like you're overdoing it. This is too much. You need to really pay attention to this. And I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to keep pushing. I'm just going to keep trying to do it all. And that just wasn't working. And of course this year, my health is showing it. I've, I've been sick a lot and it's been really frustrating in terms of training and getting ready for races and just miss time. And it's just not fun to be sick. And then also from burnout, just the feelings you get. I mean, you lose kind of your sense of joy. You don't have the same amount of joy for the things that you're doing and everything just feels a lot harder. So it's been great to be able to recognize that that's what that was and now to try to make adjustments accordingly. But it's super hard whenever you're very driven and you love everything that you're doing to, to back off. So before Poland, we were both mad as well because he also runs a business. We were both in a state of just kind of being sick and burnt out. Yeah, and I, I think it's one of those things that it's, and the analogy, I think it probably even comes from one of your other your previous guests, but it's like eating chocolate cake. Chocolate cake, you might be one of your favorite desserts, but if you eat too much of it, you're going to feel sick. So when you're living a life that, that is exciting and, and all the things that you hoped it would be and more, that's awesome, but you can't overdo it. You just end up overscheduling yourself. You don't give yourself the right amount of recovery. And then you don't do the important things that we sort of take for granted that keep us balanced, which is focusing on our community, spending time with our family, spending time with our friends, being feeling connected. Because when you're really busy, you don't have time for any of those things. So you can push it out for a while. You can be on that sort of you know, red zone, red line pace, but eventually cracks start to show. And so, yeah, again, I think both of us have been pushing a bit hard. And I think as a professional athlete, again, I'm not a professional athlete, but I think as a professional athlete, when you expect your body to perform perfectly all the time, you see that quickly. You, you can't perform to your best when you have cracks showing. So, yeah, it's been an interesting year of learning how to be respectful of that you can't actually do everything. And even if you can fit into your schedule, doesn't mean that you should. But sometimes the only way of learning that is experience. Even when someone tells you who's a professional, hey, you're doing, we're doing it, you need to slow down. Sometimes you have to live it to understand that. Yeah, so Poland was awesome because we had to sort of shift our expectations a little bit, both of us, for how fit we thought we would be or what our expectations of the race were going to be. And fortunately, you know, I ended up winning the race and I suffered a lot, but I had the fitness that I needed to get through that race. But going to Poland was a great experience for us because you had to unplug from everything from your life. And this is something that I love about stage racing is that all you do is ride your bike. And it might appear from the outside that all I do is ride my bike on a daily basis and that my whole life is a vacation, which compared to some people, it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> but it was awesome to go there and just unplug from everything. I did my best to just do the minimum and Basically, the only work-related things I did was make sure my podcast got out every week, and I had pre-recorded all of those episodes before we left, so it was just awesome to go there, and it was just really rejuvenating, even though we did this really hard race. Yeah, it's one of those fun things that, that we get to do, and I think you specifically target races like this where you don't know what to expect. You're not. We didn't know what the culture would be like. We didn't know what the geography would be like. We didn't know what the people would be like. So that's part of the fun and part of the adventure. And you have to immerse yourself. You don't have time in your, you know, mental, there is no mental capacity for thinking about what am I going to, you know, make for lunch next week? Or what about this project I'm working on? It's just trying to make sure you're getting through the day. And actually, one of the funny examples would have been, we landed in uh, Prague and picked up our rental car and started driving down the street as you go. And they drive on the same side as we do in North America, which is very helpful. 
but the road lines aren't painted a lot of times. And as we got into Prague, into downtown Prague, there's trolleys and there's these random rules of when a trolley has right away and when they don't. And there's signs we've never even seen before recognized. So we're driving through these like busy downtown Prague, dodging traffic, trying not to kill anyone, trying not to get killed ourselves. So, and jet lagged, of course, because you've been up on the plane for hours. So that first just drive to our hotel into Prague was a bit of an adventure. Yeah, definitely. And like the roads in the downtown Prague are cobbled. So like you don't even really know if you're on the road anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really fun. And we had heard lots of great things about Prague and we stayed in, it's called, I think it's called the lesser town. So there's a river that divides Prague and it was really neat. Like the hotel that we stayed in was I don't even know. It felt like something out of a Monty Python movie. <laughs> <laughs> Most of Prague felt like it was out of a Monty Python movie, actually. But yeah, it was neat little, like, we were carrying our bike suitcases. So we have Evoc cases, which are soft-sided, but they, and they have wheels, but they're still relatively bulky. But I consider a carry-on. Um, <laughs> Ace Ventura, come on. Ace Ventura, cool. But uh, the bikes were so big, they wouldn't even fit in the elevators. Like, you, the elevator in this little hotel was so tiny, there was no way to fit a bike case in. So we're taking these bike cases up this twisting spiral staircase that there's no way would pass any kind of safety code if it was made any time in the last hundred years. But it was neat sort of crawling your way up to the second floor into these little old, felt like an old room in a castle almost, but it was a building just on the side of the street. Yeah. And it had like stained glass windows in there too. Like it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And we were staying just below the Prague castle which is really, really cool. So we got a chance to go walk up some of these sort of steep alleyways that are all cobbled and into a central square where this huge castle was. And Secret training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hill repeats. It was pretty neat. Yeah, and just getting to see, like, we did a tour of the castle, and one of the most memorable parts was this area called Golden Lane, which is where people actually lived until the 50s, which is kind of crazy. But we went up the stairs, and it showed all the different suits that the knights would wear like all the different metal suits that they would wear and then all like the swords and crazy weapons that they had and then another thing that was really nuts was the medieval torture devices that they used to actually torture people like I, I just couldn't get my head around it yeah it sounds like it would be a pretty brutal time to live but part of that golden our golden lane was over time became a place for like artists and poets and writers and because it was so disconnected from the rest of the city. There's 20 houses in the lane, I think, that are all attached as one long row. There's only one toilet for 20 houses. Now, they're like one to two room little tiny places. And actually, the doorways are so low that Sonia had to duck to get through them to get in there. So I don't know what that says about the height of people in the Middle Ages, but they probably weren't super tall. <laughs> but yeah, it was a really eye-opening experience to see what the Middle Ages would have been like. And then a lot of time we didn't know anything about the history of sort of Central Europe and where Prague fit into that. So it was really neat to learn some of that stuff. Yeah, my worst nightmare as a kid was going to museums and learning about history. So you know you're old whenever you actually enjoy learning about the history. <laughs> I think it helped that there was those crazy suits of armor and torture devices that <laughs> kind of eye-opening. That's true. So the next day we ended up driving to where the town where the race started. And it was called Stroni Slosky. I think I'm saying it right. And the interesting thing about driving, so we drove across the Czech border into Poland, and Poland only has a couple main highways. So a lot of the roads that we drove on were these like super narrow two-lane highways. And people drove fast, and people tailgate the crap out of each other. Oh, yeah. The experience of the Polish drivers was 
It was pretty crazy. And some of the, they'll come around corners and big, big transport trucks are on these little twisty lanes going through little towns and they don't, they don't slow down. They're doing mock damn it all the way through. So it was a bit of an experience. Yeah. And even the semi trucks were tailgating one another. I've, I've just never seen anything like that. So I felt like grandma, grandma Looney driving. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one of the interesting things is, so we came into Stroni near the end of the day, almost at night, and it was a wet kind of foggy day. And the interesting thing about Poland is, and from North America, we just sort of take for granted that, that cities and towns spend a lot of money on keeping central ways groomed. So things are cut, the, the weeds are cut back, lawns are cut, people take care of their yards and their houses, all these things. But there, there didn't seem to be any sort of municipal budget. So you kind of roll into this town and weeds are overgrown kind of everywhere. And some of the houses have been around for probably hundreds of years and they've been stuccoed and restuccoed and some of it's peeling and some of it's not. So imagine we're going into this gloomy town with sort of misting rain and all you can see is sort of decrepit looking buildings and shrubs and we're thinking, oh my, and we roll into our Airbnb and we're thinking, where are we staying? We're going to get murdered here. (laughs) Yeah, I totally look like it. But as it turns out, the sun came out the next day, we walked around, it was actually a cute little town. But the first perception of that was a little bit intimidating. Yeah. And like with the race towns, the biggest race town was 8,500 people and the smallest race town was 2,500 people. And there were three towns. So we were really in rural, rural, that's hard to say, rural Poland. (laughs) And the mountains weren't like massive mountains, like in the Rockies, but there was like some sizable hills there. So yeah, we had a couple of days there in Stroni and then the race started and it was a six day mountain bike race. And the first day was a prologue. And we actually had the rare opportunity to pre-ride. So like when you do stage races or long endurance races, I typically don't have the opportunity to pre-ride any of it. So it's always blind. So we actually went up and we rode the prologue as a a pre-ride and it was so fun. Like the first thing that we noticed was, okay, wow, there's no corners, like no tight, twisty single track. You just go straight up and straight down. Yeah, that was the interesting thing for us coming from North America is that when you build trails, you'll often see them twisting and winding. And if you haven't built them, you're usually following an animal game trail. And you, you know, the game typically runs all over the place, so it's not straight. But in Poland, we were the first day up the prologue was up a ski area. So you kind of go up the ski access road. And then you do this hard 90 degree turn up to the new single track. And it's like just cut straight up a hill. Like there's no turns. There's no nothing. It's actually, there's some part, I don't know if you could ride the whole thing. Maybe Sonia did, but it's almost unrideable. It's loose and it's straight up. It was just like, who the heck built this thing? But it's pretty typical of the trails there. They tend to be pretty straight because you just punch them through. Now, the thing I was really proud of with the prologue is I normally... Like I talk about pacing and you got to be smart. And the reality is that I always blow myself to pieces on day one of a stage race in the prologue. And I was able to ride responsibly, mostly because I knew that I didn't have the super high end fitness. Like, don't get me wrong. I was really fit for the race, but I didn't have that fifth gear. So I made sure that I didn't try to access a gear that wasn't there and blow myself up. So I was really proud of how I rode it. It was, it was an awesome day. And I believe they just caught a fresh new piece of single track right off the top. So you go dual track, it was probably, I don't know, a 20 minute climb and then a really steep single track up to the top of the ski area. And then you descend down the backside and it was legitimately steep. Like I was not expecting to have that kind of steepness, like dropper definitely was an advantage for sure. 
Yeah, like roots and rocks and all kinds of good stuff. So yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, and I think they timed that. That was the only time downhill section. So one of the coolest parts of the, this day was this super gnarly downhill. They had, and I think it's a newer downhill as well. They timed everybody in the entire race, and Sonia had the fastest time overall out of everybody, including the men, pro men, all the women. She crushed it. Yeah, that's probably my proudest accomplishment in the entire year, maybe, is like beating all the pro men on this one <laughs> downhill. But the funny thing is I didn't even know they were timing it. I didn't even know that I had done that. Like, it was in the start shoot the next day when the race promoter came up to me and told me. And I was like, what? Like, that's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty neat. It was actually neat. At the end of the race, we're sitting around and they took a picture of all the participants and they were just finished through the awards. And the race organizer came up and grabbed the mic. He says, I just want to give a special shout out to a rider. I've just never seen anyone ride like this before. And, you know, congratulations to Sonia. It was really neat to, I think, for Sonia to feel appreciated by people that, that were at the race that knew what the course was like and how technical it was. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I was really surprised. Like, I wasn't expecting to hear my name, so that was pretty cool. But, yeah, so the race was fun. It was a couple days in each town, and the climbing was so hard. Like, it was 6,000 to 6,500 feet of climbing per day, and it'd only be, like, 30 to 35 miles. So, really, if you think about that, it's also 6,000 to 6,500 feet of descending per day. So, it's really, like, that much climbing in half that distance. So, 15 miles, 6,000 feet of climbing. And, man... So um, the drivetrain I'm using is Shimano XTR Di2, and I have a, I had a Shimano XT cassette, which goes up to a 46 in the back, and I had a 32 in the front. And by the last day, I was really wishing that I had an easier gear. Yeah, they like again the roads there, the logging roads and the trails are they're just straight up. They go up. And one of the interesting things that really stood out to me coming from living in British Columbia my whole life is just the way that the forest looked. Like we were in in rolling hills and mountains in the forest. There was active logging going on in some places. But the forest in Poland, would, you could tell it had been cut and replanted at least once, if not twice, and then harvested a couple of times. So the sort of randomness of the way the spacing of the trees were and the way the undergrowth looked was really different. Like everything you could see, straight lines down, down rows of trees that were really big and really old. And it sort of lacked the wildness that you would often see in North America with trees, different types of trees and in different places. So it's a little bit eerie. And you saw a lot less animals. Like when we were riding in British Columbia, you know, we see bears regularly. We see moose. We see deer. You see little animals like, you know, grouse, grouse and fox and birds. And they're just everywhere. Right. But there it was just crickets. And that was really about it. So we didn't see much. So the forest felt really different. Yeah, crickets and the sound. So this is something that's really funny and super annoying for me. Yeah, so I ended up bringing my 120 mil mountain bike. It's a Scott Spark Contessa 910. And my original plan was to bring my 100 mil cross-country bike, the Spark RC. But there was a problem with something on the bike that couldn't be fixed the day before we left. So I ended up having to change my game plan and bring my sort of burlier cross-country bike, which has 180 rotors, trail brakes, and it has uh, 120 millimeters of travel. So it's a little bit bigger travel and a little bit heavier for that type of racing. It also has a, a 34 mil stanchion front fork. And after seeing how technical and steep the race was, I was actually really happy I had that bike, but it was a lot more challenging. It was, it's like probably two pounds heavier than my RC bike. And that makes a difference whenever you're climbing that much every single day. So there was all these guys who were just incredibly fit. I mean, massive credit. I know how hard you have to work to be fit like that. And these guys were just killing me on the climbs and they were also riding hardtails, 
which is something I also thought about and how hard that race would be with the descents on hardtails. And a lot of people had flat tires and a lot of people were walking because it's just so incredibly hard. But it was still annoying getting past. Like nobody likes getting past and I'm super competitive. So of course I'm like going as hard as I can. And I hear behind me click, click and the sound of crunching tires on dirt and these guys catching up and passing me. And I could hear them and I got to get away from the microphone so it's not too loud in your ears. But I would just hear... Just like, <laughs> I just hated that sound. These guys are just, I don't know why they have to do that when they're like coming up to pass me. It's like, I'm just like, go away. <laughs> but fortunately I would catch them again and pass them on the downhill. But man, that was, that was just like, just mentally, I was just getting so mad and it's so funny. Like I had no reason to get mad at that. Yeah. That's really funny. The interesting things about this race is it's uh, put on by a race promoter that does a bunch of other races in Poland as well, which unbeknownst to us has a, a really good racing scene, actually. But it's so technical and it's not UCI. So a lot of the people that are not strong technically won't go to these races because they're so technical. So it really skim, it narrows the field down to technically very good riders for the most part. And of course, fit riders too. But, you know, you always get the super fit people on the uphill. But, you know, when you're running, when you take a hardtail to a race that's been promoted as being one of the most technical ones in all of Europe, if you bring that hardtail, you know, you're either some crazy freak show descender or you're probably going to be walking the downhills. Yeah, for sure. So with the race, it was pretty awesome just to see how courteous everybody was and how much camaraderie there was. Because previous races I've done in Europe like the Andalusia stage race, for example, is a really frustrating experience. I mean, it's a really cool course and a really cool experience. And I did that race back in February and I had done it another year. But there's so many people on the trail and then people just don't move out of the way on the descents. So you'll be killing yourself on the climb and then people are passing and then you can't pass on the downhill because there's just too many people walking. So the awesome thing about the Sudity Challenge in Poland was that if you weren't as good on the descents, people actually moved out of the way for you like 99% of the time. And that's really rare for a race in Europe. So I was so thankful for that. And it made it more fun because people were actually happy for you if you were better than them. They like they weren't mad that you were passing them. They're happy for you. So having that positive environment where people are happy for each other's success and inspired by somebody's fitness or somebody's skills just made for a really cool environment. Absolutely. The the cool thing was definitely the diversity of the field. So you had people from Italy, from Switzerland, from all over Europe. But everybody was there because they knew the trails were awesome. Like this race is definitely burly, and I would say that would be the best way to describe it. And so when people are out there racing, they're all there to get the best experience they can. So you you get people very respectful of one another, and it, it was a really good vibe. There's all kinds, and often in, in these kinds of races, you'll get groups of people staying in tents or having a sort of a race community. And they had that here. They had a lot of locals sleeping in the gymnasium. So you would bring your sleeping bag and your mat, and you sleep in the gym. We did not do that, thankfully. Because <laughs> it was incredibly, incredibly humid and they were going through a heat wave there. So typically the weather in Poland at this time of year would be about 23 degrees Celsius to 25, which is going to be 70 to maybe, maybe touch 80 degrees Fahrenheit. But there was a massive heat wave and we were going up to 30 and 35 degrees in the race, which is closer to 100. 36 degrees is 100 degrees Fahrenheit and humid, like incredibly humid. So it was really challenging. Like you were just completely like sleeping is difficult because there's no air conditioning because they're typically 
not that hot. So your recovery is compromised. So it was nice to have a good culture and good community because sometimes the, those conditions were a bit wearing for sure. Yeah. Another interesting thing was the beds in the hotel rooms were really hard. There was like sleeping on a board. And it's just that's just how it is over there culturally. Like the beds are just really hard everywhere we stayed. So we're happy to come home and have our soft little bed. <laughs> I know. So soft, actually. I think the, a thermorest would definitely be more comfortable than their beds by a long sled, or softer anyways. Yeah, so I don't really have much else to say about the race because going into a play-by-play is pretty boring. But the women's field was pretty cool because there was women from so many different countries. And fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how you view it, but I, I viewed it as fortunately. I, I had a, pr- a pretty solid lead every single day. So it was kind of a low-stress competitive environment. Which is good because, yeah, it's low stress, but it's also bad in a way because it can also, whenever it's high stress, it, you might be able to push a limit that you've never seen yourself push before. But I still had to work hard. If I There's two days where I decided to start a little bit slower because I just didn't want to suffer that much at the start. And both of those days, the second place girl, Sandra Backman, caught me. So, you know, it's important to have that pressure coming from behind, but it was a luxury to have a little bit of a lead each day. But the cool thing was that the second and third place gals, the third place girl was from Poland. They had a tight race going. So there was like a fire behind me going on this, like these, this strong women's competition. And it was awesome to see that and just cool to meet women from different places in Europe. Absolutely. And the men's category was the same thing. It was pretty much a battle every day. And again, there was a bunch of mechanicals. We were lucky enough to avoid that pretty much completely with, you know, having the right bike, having full suspension, having the right tires, running the right pressures, all that stuff pays off over six days because there was a lot of changing of leads just because somebody blew themselves or blew their bike apart in the middle of the race. Yeah, actually, I I did have a mechanical, so I didn't have any flats, which is amazing and and great. Like I've been using Max's tires this year, and I'm typically not a big flat tire person. Like I used another brand for several years, and I haven't had that many flats in races. And like that comes from a number of things. Like number one, when someone's having lots of flats in races, they're probably choosing a tire that's too light. So I tend to ride a a tire that's a little bit heavier or a little bit thicker of a sidewall. And I was using the Maxxis Icon at this race, a 2.4 in the front and a 2.2 in the back. But a lot of times people run these like paper thin tires to save weight on the climbs, which I don't actually think is faster over time. You're playing an odds game, especially in a stage race whenever you don't have like we don't have people with wheel sets in the middle of the forest waiting for you. Another thing is that learning how to be a really technically savvy rider means learning how to pick good lines and knowing which line is going to potentially cause a flat or knowing when to slow down a little bit. Like there are sections with like, which is basically like a scree fields that are steep full of really sharp rocks. And I would intentionally go slower, not a lot slower, but just slow down a little bit on those sections because I know that the likelihood of flatting is higher in those places. And it would be in those places where you'd see the trail littered with people fixing their flat tires. But the mechanical I had was a really interesting one, and I didn't even know this was possible. So most of my brake hosing is internally routed, but there's a little bit on the bottom that's showing. And I was just going down one of these rocky descents that I was just mentioning, and suddenly my back brake stopped working. Like I felt it work, and then I just sort of all of a sudden it lost power really quickly and went to the bar, and then there was absolutely nothing happening. And this was like halfway through one of the days. And it turned out that one of those sharp rocks had jumped up and slashed open my brake housing, which I literally have never heard of this happening. It was just this crazy freak accident. So for the rest of the day, I had to race with only a front brake. 
And if you're going to have a brake fail, I would say the back brake is probably the better of the two. But near the end of that day, it got really sketchy because it was very steep, like crazy steep. And you couldn't ride it unless you had two brakes. So I was like off my bike, like trying to run down these downhills. And it was scary even like holding my bike because I only had the front brake and just wheeling the bike down the hill was, was dangerous. So I ended up having to carry the bike. So that was kind of frustrating, but I managed to just mentally get through it. And fortunately, I was able to ride most of the descents without a rear brake and just learn. It was it was interesting because you learned when you use your rear brake and then how to like start choosing different lines. Like you'd start actually running over like big roots and stuff to try and slow yourself down without having to brake on these downhills. But then, so the mechanics did a great job. They like had to replace the entire housing and for internal routing, it's a big pain in the butt. So they did a great job with that and did it quickly. But unfortunately, I had given them new brake pads to put in because just for good measure. But unfortunately, somehow they forgot to put in the screw that holds the pads in place, which I didn't even know. And ultimately, it's my responsibility to double check the work that has been done on the bike. So it's, you know, I'm taking responsibility for this, but the next day I'm riding along and I'm like, yeah, like my brakes are working. Everything's good. I'm riding. And then all of a sudden nothing, no rear brake again. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I didn't know what happened. And like the, the hose was intact. And I was, so I just like was whatever, I'll just keep riding. And I got to an aid station and at one aid station, they have the mechanics there. And it turns out that the pads had fallen out during a downhill because they weren't actually screwed in and that the mechanics actually had my old pads still on them and they were able to put it back in the bike. So that was really, I was really thankful for that because that day would have been even harder to ride with just a front brake. Absolutely. And that's one of those times where you're thankful you have a couple extra minutes because you got to stop at the aid station, have a conversation, decide how you're going to do with your bike. All the while, people are just, you know, raging past you and you're, you know, trying to keep your cool. So that's nice to have a minute or two in the in the bank, so to speak. Yeah. Or uh, double fisting the chips, which is definitely something (laughs) (laughs) I was doing. I don't normally spend much time at aid stations and it's, even though it's stressful to be stopped whenever your bike's getting worked on, it's also a luxury to have that moment and to be able to eat all the food. (laughs) So the race was an awesome experience and we really loved it, but we also tacked on some tourist time, which we'll briefly share some stories from that. After the race, we went to Krakow, Poland, and the interesting part was the GPS said, oh, it's only going to be three and a half hour drive. So we were prepared for this three and a half hour drive, and we're so wrecked after this race, just so exhausted. And the drive ended up taking closer to six hours because of those two lane roads and all the craziness. And then they have like a toll road. It's like one of the only highways. It's a toll road, but then it's the, the old school kind where you have to stop and give them money at the window. So we were like stopped for over 30 minutes waiting to pay to get in. But we finally made it to Krakow. And Krakow was my favorite place that we visited. And I think that was the same for Matt. It just felt so medieval. It felt like something out of a movie. Like there is still parts of the city wall from way back in the day. Like I don't know how long ago, but they had like a city wall with towers and they had these little castles and they showed where the moat used to be. Like it was just so crazy. Yeah, the history of the area was really neat. They had, I didn't realize that Krakow was part of Bohemia, which would have been closely associated with Prague and other areas, which was a center in the Middle Ages and even like 900 and 1100 AD. They had un, one of the first universities there and, a, and some of their rulers were really focused on arts and culture and how that develops your society. So, and still to this day, universities and cinema and arts are a big, big part of the culture in Krakow. So it was, it was really neat. I had no idea that this the city was really influential in the Middle Ages. 
And then again, seeing those old fortifications and the old churches that were built in like 1300 and the castle. So we went up to the castle and as the legend is that the castle was built on top of a dragon's den and the first king of Krakow had defeated the dragon and then therefore built the castle on top of his den. So when you go there and you go to the castle, you can go down to the dragon's den. They actually have a, there's an underground cave and they have this little exhibit you can go through and, you know, stub your toes on stuff if you're wearing flip-flops, all kinds of good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, One of the super interesting things that I just didn't remember or recall from history growing up was that It was a big part of World War II, and I thought that Auschwitz was in Germany, and it's actually in Poland, and that's the concentration camp from the Holocaust, and there was a series of them in that area. So everyone said, well, like, yeah, it's really hard to go there, but it's really worth going to. And Matt and I were a little bit hesitant just because it's it's hard to go see stuff like that. But that was probably one of the highlights of our trip is going to experience just just how terrible that was like it was it's unbelievable that that happened and and what i didn't know was that the secret service tried to hide that like i thought that all that everyone in germany knew what was going on in these concentration camps during the holocaust i thought that was just common knowledge but no like most people had no idea that that was going on and whenever world war ii was coming to an end the secret service tried to bomb their own concentration camps to try and hide the evidence yeah, it was pretty crazy to, and prior to World War, the start of the war, the Nazis practiced on their own people, getting the whole concept of how a concentration camp would work and how to hide it from everybody. And so really, you know, Hitler experimented on his own people first. And then once he got the whole system dialed, then then when World War II started, which I, again, I'd forgotten, started when they invaded Poland. Then, of course, he expanded that program and targeted Jews and gypsies and uh, all kinds of people. But one of the most impactful things that we saw when we went to Auschwitz, there's, I think, four concentration camps in the Auschwitz area. So Auschwitz II, Birkenau, I'm probably saying that wrong isn't as well kept as the main Auschwitz, which is all the buildings are intact. They've been turned into exhibits like museum exhibits. So you can go to each one of the buildings and they tell a different story and there's lots of good information and it's pretty powerful. But I'd say the more impactful one was the second one we went to where it would have been mostly flattened and blown up by the Nazis. And and But they had these little plaques explaining what each one of the former buildings were. And when you come in, there's this giant gate with these railroad tracks that go straight through the gate and right straight to the back of the compound. And there's no exaggeration, hundreds of buildings that would have been housing people. But a train would have rolled in a big, long, like cattle car full of people. Now, at the end of the cattle car was the extermination, the gas chambers. And 75% of the people that got off that train instantly were sent to the gas chamber. And 25% of them, if you were strong and healthy, would have been then worked to death and then gassed. But it was just completely shocking to see the pictures of thousands of people getting off these trains and they would have been marched straight into these extermination chambers. It's just, it's really, really hard to get your head around the scale of what humans were doing to one another. It's, it's really crazy. Yeah. And like, without seeing it, it's like, yeah, you have this picture in your mind, but seeing it, it just makes it even more real and even more horrific than that happened. Like it was really emotional to be there. And also just a good reminder just to make sure that we look at each person with compassion, like no matter where they're from, no matter what their race is, no matter even if you agree with their political or religious opinions, just how important that is. Because, man, I just can't believe that that happened. Yeah. 
I mean, the systematic running of this program would have had to have included probably hundreds of thousands of employees that did understand. Well, the mass population wouldn't. They were very careful to make sure that was the case. But they brought people in from Africa, from all over Europe, from two of these places where everybody that was working would have known this would have happened. So, yeah, the lack of compassion for your fellow human being, the you know dehumanizing of people that don't look like you or don't talk like you or don't have the same beliefs is pretty shocking. Yeah, so we had to cheer ourselves up and go back to Prague for a couple of days before we went home. Oh, one more comment, though, about oh. Krakow. So oh. the one, one thing I really liked about Krakow, the city, is that it felt sort of very authentic. You had the very old parts of Krakow and the center squares and these like really neat old buildings and cobblestones. But it still felt, even though there was tourism there, very sort of authentic, um, which we really, really enjoyed. And then I would say, in our, from a vegan perspective, uh, we found stumbled across the one vegan... There's actually lots of great vegan food in, in Krakow. But the one gem I did want to mention is vegan... Burgers, like veggie burgers in Krakow are phenomenal. Like they are absolutely noteworthy. They're incredible. Yeah. I mean, we've had veggie burgers all over the world and it was crazy. Like they had marinated seitan, which is like a, a wheat protein. Just And then this other one, it was like so big, we couldn't even eat it. It, it. I can't even describe to you how good their veggie burgers were and how many different restaurants there were. It was amazing. Yeah. So thumbs up veggie burgers in Krakow. Still world's best veggie burger scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Most people don't know that, <laughs> including us. So yeah, we moved on to Prague and we had the GPS said it was going to be about a five hour drive. So we're like, oh God, it's going to take like 10 hours. It's going to be crazy. But we, we moseyed on over. We stopped in a small town um, or another town. It's the second biggest city actually in Czech Republic called Bruno just for lunch. And that was a pretty neat place. Czech Republic definitely has a different feeling from Poland and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Could you? I think their level of wealth is a little bit higher, I would say, in Czech Republic and the level of education that most people have. Rural Poland was still quite poor to the point where you might have a town with 5,000 people or 6,000 people, and there might only be one or two restaurants in the whole town because people can't afford to eat out. It's not part of their culture to do so. So capitalism didn't seem to flourish in quite the same way in Poland. And then educationally in Czech Republic, English is a big part of everybody's schooling. So obviously in the bigger centers in, in Poland, most people spoke English, but it seemed like everybody in Czech Republic did. It was very easy traveling as a North American. Yeah, so we got to Prague and found more vegan food, which is awesome. And supposedly Prague is supposed to be the vegan food capital of Europe, which I don't actually agree with that. Like there was a ton of different options for us, but it didn't seem to stand out over anything else. But I don't know. I, I haven't really done a, a full synopsis or travel, vegan travel experience there, but there was lots of great food. And we stayed right in the old town this time. And it was crazy. So like a lot of the downtown is closed to cars. So we had our Uber driver drop us off and we again dragging up our luggage and this girl meets us and she comes up to us and said, this is the door. The door is from the 1800s and it had the old school key, like the key from a Disney movie. And it was hard to use. Like you had to get it in just the right spot. Like you had to push it in the right amount. Otherwise it wouldn't work. So we go in and then we had to carry all of our luggage again up four flights of stairs and that part was probably harder than the race <laughs> because I don't travel light. I have my rice cooker. I have like elevated legs. Like I got all this crap with me. 
So we get up there and we're staying on the top floor and you stick your head out the window and it's awesome. It's like you can see all these old buildings and everyone walking up and down the street. And I've never stayed right in the heart of a town like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see the renovations because I think I believe the building was built, uh, you know, two, three hundred years ago. So obviously there's no elevators, but everything's stone and brick and it was really in marble. It was really neat, neat vibe. And all the buildings are mashed together. So in North America, you have a building and then you have a space in another building and there everything is literally touching. So the, the alleyways are just winding through these tall, tall, you know, it feels like an alley, I suppose, even though it's really not. But uh, yeah, and it was the one thing that wasn't so good, again, back to the heat wave, was they were having an unexpected heat wave and no AC. And my God, was that hot. And in Krakow too. Yeah, like it felt like 100% humidity. It probably was. And it was like 100 degrees. It was 100, 105 degrees. Outside and inside, like, and staying on the fourth floor of a building was like crazy hot. They had a fan, which was nice. So you literally would wet a towel, put the towel around you, turn the fan on, and you still could barely sleep because it was so hot. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. It was pretty nuts. One of the things that was interesting about Prague is that it's a real hub for a short weekend sort of party vacation for a lot of Europe because it's, of course, a short flight away. You go into the old town of Prague and there's tons of bars and clubs and all kinds of stuff. So at night, it is, it's just off the charts. People are just going out and partying their brains out. So we nicknamed it Prague Vegas or Pregus because <laughs> <laughs> it'd be 4 a.m. And of course, your windows are open because it's about a billion degrees. It's 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And just like packs of people are still in the streets screaming and yelling. And it, it was something else. All right. Yeah. Like we're not big party people. Like, we, yeah, we like having like one or two cocktails, but like a really nice cocktail. We're just we're just snobs. But we'd rather like have a one or two nice cocktails and then go to bed. But yeah, people were just like partying like crazy. But the trip itself in Prague was beautiful too. That was again like something out of a Disney movie. And we got to see a bunch of the sites and we did this ghost tour at night, which was, it was funny, but it was also kind of interesting to hear some of those stories. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that that I didn't realize is that Czech Republic has only been a country since 1990, I think, 89-90, when uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. So as a country, it's still kind of a new country, and they drew new borders and because it was the Czechoslovakia before, so Czech and Slovakia. So now those are two separate countries. And so you got to hear, in the ghost tour, you got to hear a bunch of really interesting stories from, you know, year, decades ago and, and hundreds of years ago. But it was actually really kind of a fun experience. Between the roving groups of partying people and our ghost story guy, it was it was pretty funny, who actually happened to be an American guy teaching English in Prague, which is pretty funny. Yeah, so it was a great trip overall, and we got to have a lot. Like, the race itself was fun, and the travel around it was fun as well. And for me, like, I choose races. People ask me, how do you choose a race? Do you choose races based on UCI points? Do you choose races based on prize money? And... I don't know. For me, I'm not motivated by those things. I'm motivated by having cool stories and and just chapters that I can look back on my life and say, that was a really cool experience. And I really remember that. Not to say races that are UCI or with good prize money won't provide that experience, but my number one requirement is it going to be a cool adventure. And Poland was somewhere that I probably would never go just as a tourist. Like I just never crossed my mind to ever even go there. To be honest, I didn't know anything about Poland before I went. And also, is it going to be a cool ride experience? Like that was a great experience as well. And then being able to go to both two countries, Czech Republic and Poland, which I forgot to mention, you got to race on the border quite a bit, like 
in the mountains, there's just like these posts and those are the border for the two countries. So just having that experience, getting to be there, go there, that's what makes me excited about racing and getting to meet all these new people. Yeah, and getting to learn a whole bunch about a new culture. So whether it's the Polish culture or Czech or, you know, Middle Ages or, you know, fall of communism, all these kind of big events, some of which are close to us and some of which are really far away, were made that trip really stand out as being a good learning experience and a, a good new experience for both of us. And we didn't get to actually talk about how your race went, Matt. No, I've been avoiding that on purpose. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. I'm not letting you get away with that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, my race, the, the Coles knows to my race story is we had a bit of a illness before, a bit of a respiratory illness before. And day one for me, you know, I hadn't been training as much as I would have liked to. And I've been a bit sick. So I thought, you know, day one, you have this big, long climb, big descent. And it's more or less the whole prologue. First day, six day race. You know what? Let's just take it easy because we have six days and and I'm smart enough. And I've done this enough to know that if I go really hard, it's going to be a problem. Or so I thought. So halfway up the climb, I'm thinking, geez, I feel really good today. You know what? The heck with it. I'm just going to pin it to win it because I feel good. And I know I'm going to suffer the next few days. Who cares? So sure enough, I did that. I had a good first day. I had a lot of fun just suffering like crazy, but having a good time. But as it turns out, that was a bad thing to do. And I created a really, I learned a lot about, about more about my physiology. So I was able to put my, I ended up creating a lot of respiratory distress based on the illness before and plus racing like right at my limit for that. So that hurt. Day two, I ended up DNFing because of my respiratory system was totally shattered. So what ended up happening was due to the illness and the day before, I was having a really hard time breathing. So I ended up having to walk little parts and then ride and walk and ride and walk and ride. And I did that for about four hours to the point where I couldn't even walk up a one degree slope. My respiratory system uh, diaphragm was spasming. I couldn't control my breathing. Uh, and I started to feel super nauseous and like I was putting myself into medical danger. So I had to had to pull out, which is kind of unfortunate. But it was a good learning experience about how how far you're able to push yourself until you really create damage and and when to pull the pin and you know no shame sometimes things go wrong i don't mind being slow and at that point you know it was beyond just the fact that i'm way off the back it was hey i think i might end up in the hospital if i keep doing this so yeah it was a good learning experience yeah and i think that something important to say is that you got back out there actually like you took the rest needed to feel better and then you got back out there and you started riding again yeah, I took a day off, um, two days off actually, and, and recovered as best I could. And then I raced the last two days and, I, you know, I was a long ways from feeling well, but I knew that if as long as I stayed below a certain effort level, a really low effort level, I'd at least be able to ride. So of course, being all the way in Poland, going, to, I wanted to see those cool trails as well. But uh, yeah, you just sort of, you put your ego away and you go, hey, why am I here? I'm here to experience a really cool place and do the best that I can and got back on my bike and, and rode the last two days as best I could. And I mean, it was really slow, but it was as fast as I could go. So sometimes that's all you got. And I was okay with that. But there's some moments in there where you're pissed, right? Yeah, I did all this training and I'm traveling all the way here and I wanted to do better than that. But sometimes you have to learn from your mistakes. So how do you put your ego away? Because like, it's really hard to do. And you, Matt, if, if you guys, most of you guys probably don't know him personally, but Matt is like incredibly calm. He's just like such a calming person to be around. He, he doesn't get all worked up very often and he's very good at managing emotions. So how do you put your ego away? I don't know exactly how to quantify that. I mean, I think 
everybody's different in how they're built, I suppose. Undoubtedly, I'm super competitive and I get very angry and I've lost it <laughs> in races with myself and other people sometimes. <laughs> but I think for the most part, I'm able to feel that emotion and get angry and then, you know, then allow myself to be not hard on myself. So I made a stupid mistake on day one. I didn't count how badly the illness beforehand would affect me. And I made a mistake. And what do you do with that? All you can do is learn from it. So I parked that away and went, okay, I'm just not going to do that again. Like if I keep on doing that, then that's just not the smartest thing ever. But I put myself in a position where I, I actually took a positive. I was able to look at it and go, I had a really terrible experience. I DNF'd. But the positive that day was, I was able to push myself to the point of medical emergency, and I was really excited to find out that I could do that. By the same token, <laughs> I had to have to be a little respectful that you can do that to yourself if you're not careful. So it's not just about being tough or pushing yourself, because that can be really the wrong thing to do. So trying to figure out where that limit is, where it's healthy suffering, healthy pain, healthy discomfort to medical problem. So I felt like I sort of found that line a little bit, which I found is a positive. Yeah, and... It sounds like you're just really good at having a lot of self-compassion. And if the listeners are struggling with that, I know I struggle with self-compassion. I'm incredibly hard on myself. I have a really hard time letting things go to a fault. There is a, a former podcast we recorded with Dr. Kristen Neff, and her entire research is on self-compassion. So go check that one out. Yeah. And for me, I, I try and leave the past in the past as much as I can. I, I think it's important not to ignore it, not to bury it, to examine it, if you can, from a, as far a place away as you can emotionally, and then take that as instruction and then move ahead as much as you can. Now, it's hard to do that when you put emotion in the way, but I think the worst outcome that you can do is to ignore it and bury it because it will come back in a negative way. So it's a balance between the two, you know, respecting that you have to examine these things, but not getting trapped into a downward spiral. So yeah, I think that podcast that you previously recorded was really helpful with that. Yeah. And I also think that we get tied up in worrying about what other people are going to think about what happened. Like, oh, I didn't perform a certain way, or I had a DNF, or I just wasn't that fast. Like whatever it is that you're worried about, a lot of times we are worried about other people thinking bad things about us. But really, it's like if those people are thinking bad things about you or saying bad things about you, those aren't your people. And you probably shouldn't value their opinion anyway. Absolutely. And nobody spends more time thinking about you than you do, which is probably a good thing on all kinds of levels, <laughs> right? But no one cares about you as much as you care about yourself. So if you think people are running around talking about you and how well you did or how bad you did or whatever, they may say one or two things about that. And then it's gone from their mind forever. So it's different as you become more of a public figure, you'd certainly have scrutiny from media and from other people. But even then, it's a lot less than you yourself think about it because it's stuck in your head the whole time. So it's trying to let your ego relax your ego a little bit, as well as trying to manage external expectations. Yeah. And one more thing I wanted to add is actually something that I'm working on is trying to turn down the criticism. Because a lot of times when we're highly critical of ourselves, we tend to be highly critical of other people for similar things. So if you can be more compassionate towards yourself, more accepting of yourself, try to be less critical of yourself, then you end up being less critical of others as well. And I, I've noticed that that's something I've been working on all year. And I think that that's been super helpful and something that we can all cultivate. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things, and it's a point that Sonia made to me, is what is the first, and not everybody does this, but many, many people do. What is the first thing that you look at when you look in the mirror? Say you're standing in front of the mirror, where you typically look at the things that you don't like first, and then you might move on to the things that you do like about yourself. And that's a really messed up thing to do. We should be looking at ourselves and finding all the positives first and then the negatives. But if that's how you screen and how you think about yourself, of course, that's how you're going to view other people. You're going to look for the negative first and then find the positive, which is really unfortunate. So, but we do it to ourselves before we do it to somebody else. We would never want to say publicly that we did that to somebody else. It'd be horrific. Oh yeah, I know I look for the worst <laughs> in people first. <laughs> it's just not cool. But for some reason, we allow ourselves to do that to ourselves. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting journey when you start paying attention to that. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about our trip and race to Poland and the Czech Republic. And we're so thankful that you stopped by to share this experience with us. Absolutely. And I would highly recommend that race. If you get a chance to go to the Sudeti Challenge, you want a legitimately burly race and you want a great travel experience, go check out Poland and the Czech Republic. All right. We'll link that up in the show notes. That's a wrap on Poland. If you're not subscribed to my newsletter, go to my website and a little window will pop up. I did send out a newsletter right after we got back about what this experience was like, but the podcast provides more of an extended cut of all the things that went down. I'd also love your feedback. Send me a message on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm on all those places so I can hear what's working for you with the show. I've gotten lots of comments and I'd love to hear what kind of guests resonate the best with you. I also wanted to extend an invite to you guys to my free Facebook group, the Plant Powered Tribe. And it's more of a community page where people write about their experiences and foods they're eating to just be healthier in their lives. Everything is geared towards plant-based, of course, and you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat plant-based to be a part of the group, but you just have to be interested in overall health and wellness. So go to Facebook and look for Plant Powered Tribe with Sonia Looney. And also I now have an Instagram account called Plant Power Tribe, and that's more about my food journey. It's mostly food pictures and information, and I've separated that a little bit from my personal other Instagram about mountain biking for those who are more interested in the nutrition side of what I'm doing. Speaking of food, this is a good chance to give a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Four Sigmatic. And they also make a mushroom coffee. So it's coffee, but it has some of the different mushrooms that are in place. And the interesting thing about this coffee is that a lot of times people say, well, when I drink coffee, I get the jitters or I have stomach issues. But with the Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee mix, you don't have those side effects because the mushrooms counteract that. Use my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout, S-O-N-Y-A-L-O-O-N-E-Y to get 15% off. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this product. That's it for today's show, you guys. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, for being part of my community and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>